As you're turning in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, we're starting a new direction and new emphasis in our journey through Ephesians over the next uh, few months. The, the, first, uh, the first three chapters of Ephesians are intensely theological. They, they go into the theology of salvation, the theology of, of how we are brought together and and today it goes into, and starting today is, how, how do we deal with that? What, what, what's the purpose of having this deep theology? And it's the question of how we should now then live. It's not a question of, do we add something to Jesus? It's an answer of, now that we have Jesus, how does that affect tomorrow? How does that affect next week, next month? And it's a difference in how we Walk now as you're as you're looking in your Bible in Ephesians four. I got a couple of people I want to introduce y'all to here um, on the screen. Some of them you probably remember. The first one's Randy Johnson. Many people remember Randy Johnson, the the pitcher who used to pitch for uh, the Seattle Mariners, and then he pitched for the Arizona Diamondbacks for a while. And uh, and 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 he was kind of this is an old Diamondbacks picture. He kind of looks a little bit rough, looks a little bit like Alan Jackson, kind of. Um, but you know, he's got the, the the nasty hair. He was the guy that could throw. He was like six foot seven. He could throw the pitch off the back of his hand, which is kind of crazy. Well, he he ended up being one of the greatest pitchers that the American League ever had. Now, let me tell you about another guy, a guy named Johnny Damon. Maybe you'll remember Johnny Damon. He played for the Boston Red Sox, all the Bostoners up there. They remember Johnny Damon. Maybe you remember Johnny Damon's brother, the Geico Caveman. <laughs> these, these are some scraggly looking fellas, right? Major League Baseball doesn't have any rules or regulations about how you actually externally appear when you're out on the field. You know, they want you to have your uniform and tucked in, but, you know, hair, facial hair, you can look as rough as you want to or as nice as you want to, no matter what. But some organizations require that you have a specific type of appearance off the field. Some organizations want you to be worthy of the name that is going across your jersey. Now, I'm just going to go full disclosure on, on you, and I hope I don't offend anybody. I do not like the New York Yankees. I, 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 can't, I can't stand them. The, the Yankees and the Mets are like the bottom of the barrel in Major League Baseball for me. I love the Braves. I, I'm, I'm all about the Braves. I kind of like the Red Sox a little bit. Um, but man, the Yankees, they're just terrible. But here's the thing about the Yankees. The Yankees don't put up with Caveman Johnny, Caveman Randy. The Yankees determine that if you're going to be one of them, there is a certain appearance. So in 2005, Randy Johnson went from the Arizona Diamondbacks to the New York Yankees, and when he appeared for his press conference, it's a little bit of a change, isn't it? The hair's gone. The facial hair's a little bit clean. It's amazing what a two-year, $55 million contract will do for your external appearance, right? Well, what about our buddy Johnny Damon? What happened to him? Look at the baby face. Look at him. He's all clean and nice looking. He actually looks like he might get married one day. Some lady would actually take him. It's amazing what four years and $52 million will do. 
But it's not just the contract, it's the name that gets associated with the player. It's who's in charge. It's who you yield yourself to be in control over you that makes the difference. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that such is the case for us when we come to faith in Christ. If you would, turn with me there, Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we reverence the reading of the Word of God together, looking at the first six verses in in an understanding of how we should then walk. Look at what he says. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of faith, the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we can come into your presence this morning. Father, I thank you that there is a common bond of peace because of the hope we have in Christ Jesus in this place. Father, I thank you that we can join ourselves with other churches, with other followers of Christ all over the world for the single cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Father, I ask that you would help us to see the name of Christ lifted up, the supremacy of God in our lives so that we would walk according to the call you have placed on us in Jesus. Take all these things that we've learned about who you are and how you saved us and make them real and how we love our neighbors today, tomorrow, and into the future. God, we love you. We love you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So there at the top of your worship guide, you've got the little outline there and there's the little Ephesians graphic and you'll see uh, underneath in the little tiny print in the Ephesians, it says, walking according to the call. I believe that this verse, verse one in chapter four, is the thesis verse, the hinge point, what Ephesians is actually all about. It shows us how God blessed us in chapter one with every spiritual blessing. He called us into his family as sons and daughters for what purpose? To be a demonstration of the power that he has to save. It's a power that I personally am grateful for him showing. I believe many of you are grateful for the power of God in salvation. Who knows where we would be if it were not for Christ Jesus. But the question that we ask ourselves today is, are we still running around like Boston Johnny Damon, Arizona Randy Johnson, or are we demonstrating the call difference of being associated with the name of Christ Jesus? And so so Paul urges us, he pulls us into his heart. He pulls us in. He, he, he wraps his arm around us and says, look, I'm urging you with everything I have, with everything that is within me, you have placed the name of Jesus on your life. You have attend, uh, appended to yourself Christ's likeness. So I want you to walk in a way that shows Christ to others. Why? 
Because it's a reminder that our walk is not our own doing. Our walk is not our own doing. It's not that we decided one day, you know what? I'm going to figure out godliness today. I was sleeping on this and I was thinking long and hard and I've decided that I'm going to make myself just like Jesus because I heard a cool Sunday school lesson or I heard a good sermon or somebody said, you should be more like Jesus. No, no, no. What Paul says here is that you've been called by something. You've been called by the Spirit of God. You've been called by the power of Christ in creation. You have been called according to the purpose that God had from before the foundation of the world to draw you into his family. It wasn't your doing. It wasn't my doing. It wasn't some preacher before me's doing. It wasn't the the work of a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or a, a faithful parent or grandparent. It wasn't their doing. It was the work of God. It, it was a call that goes far beyond our calling capacity. Now, here's something kind of cool that that is it's just it's it's really cool to think about. You know, you got one of these things in in your some of you got them in your pocket or your purse, or whatever, um, smartphone or whatever. I can link to people all over the world with this. My wife's grandmother is 103 years old. Now, now she, she very, very vividly remembers not having a phone in the house. She very, very vividly remembers having to pick up and asking to be connected to somebody. She very, very vividly remembers when you only had like four digits to your phone number. I can remember about 15 years ago when Atlanta decided, hey, we're going to have to go to 10-digit numbers around here so you, everybody can call local. Man, right now, believe it or not, if you are under the age of 20, these things are still new, okay? Life didn't always exist without some sort of phone in your pocket, in your car, somewhere you could go. And we have this ability to connect all over the world with this, but even the call of God goes further than what we can do. The call of guard, the guard, the call of God comes from the light of heaven into the darkness of your world, the darkness of this world, and says, I'm calling you to be my child. Paul says, I implore you, I urge you, I beg you, I encourage you. There is no, there is no lack of strength in the word that Paul uses here. It is almost as though it is his last plea before he is executed for his faith that Christians all over the world, as primarily in Ephesus in his writing, but for us today in Fairburn, Georgia, realize the call of God and see what he has done. But here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel is the call of God that beckons our response. It beckons our response. Okay, so you decide that you want to get in touch with somebody. You pull out your little phone, you touch, and you miss, you miss your password at least five times every time. I know, I do it too. Your fingers get too fast for it. And if you do it 10 times, guess what? It erases everything on your phone. So you want to make sure you get it right. So you pull it out and you say, okay, here's who I'm going to call. I'm going to call Christy right quick. I'm going to call my wife. I want to talk to my wife, so I'm going to call her. So I put the phone up to my ear and I'm listening. She's not answering. Hey, she answered. She answered the phone. See, when your phone rings, it's because somebody needs to get in touch with you and you answer it, right? 
What about when the gospel is put into your heart and put into your life and the spirit of God says, this is the power of Christ. This is who you are without him. This is the sin. This is the brokenness. This is all that the world offers, but I'm offering you hope and peace and joy and forgiveness and new life with your creator God who loves you. The gospel comes and it beckons your response. Some of you, phone's ringing, you're like... I don't want to talk to him what do you do you swipe left right swipe left I'm ignoring that some of you the part you don't know the person's watching you swipe left you sit there and say why'd you, why'd you ignore my call I watched you sometimes you have to go back well I can't talk right now I'll, I'll, I'll get later see that's what we do to God I, I can't talk right now I have to get back to you See, our little smartphones, they have these, they have these nice little instant uh, reply text messages. Somebody calls you, you're in a meeting, and so you can swipe up a little bit, and you can hit that, and it'll automatically send to whoever's calling you. Can't talk right now. I'm in a meeting. I'm driving. You can put your, you can put your phone on driving mode where somebody calls you, and it automatically goes, I'm driving. I'll have to call you back later. That's what we do with the gospel so often, but it is a call that beckons our response. It beckons our answer. It calls each one of us to say, yes, this is who I am in Christ, or no, I'm not ready for that. But it beckons a response. You cannot hear the gospel without responding. Even when you're in Christ. That's where it gets a little uncomfortable for church people. Because we're like, yeah, I'm saved, I'm good. But the gospel comes back and says, but this is how you grow in Christ's likeness. This is how you appreciate what God has done. This is how you demonstrate the power and the gospel continues to come and the gospel continues to come and the gospel continues to come. It's kind of like a few months ago, we had to get a new vehicle. And so there was like this trial of serious XM. I can't get those people to leave me alone. They call me about 19 times a week for me to say, I'm not buying, I'm not paying for radio. I can get it for free. I'm not paying you for it. I already have radio. I don't need your radio. I'm not, and, and, and they keep calling and they keep calling. The gospel has that persistence. You come and you're like, well, why is it important to be in Sunday school? Why is it important to be in church? Because we consistently need the exposure to the gospel to remember how wonderful God is. It beckons our response. And Paul says, I'm urging you and I'm begging you to walk in this because this is a call that challenges our walk it challenges our walk you ever go to like the mall or walmart and just watch people walk people walk funny just watch them sometime what's really really funny is watching people watching ladies that don't know how to walk in heels try to walk in heels And, and and all of you ladies that lived through the 70s you thought platforms were gone but apparently they're back for a little while, I, I worked in the shoe department at, at a belt, and, and I was just, I'm just looking at these women's high heels. I'm like, okay, if the heel is so tall that you have to add stuff to the front of the shoe in order to make the heel touch the ground and not be like all cattywampus and lopsided, then you just shorten the heel and it's okay, right? Well, it's really funny watching people try to walk in these heels. But you go to Walmart and you just watch a lot of people walk. Some people, you can tell they've had some sort of injury. They kind of walk with a little bit uh, of an injury. That's me on some days. Some people, what's really, really cool, what's really funny is watching like nine and 10 year olds try to emulate people they think is cool, you know? Because, you know, guys get that strut where they kind of have a, it's almost like they got a bad leg. They kind of, 
but watching kids do it. It's really funny because they always do. Yeah, people walk funny, right? The way you walk is the way you carry yourself. The way you carry yourself says a lot of things about your outlook on life and what you deem to be important. And while we not, might not be talking about the physical way you put left in front of right, the way you walk through life demonstrates how you live in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says right here, the gospel, and this is why if you're in Christ Jesus, this is why active involvement in the local church through Sunday school, through Bible study, through midweek, through worship services is important because we consistently need to be reminded that God has called us something different than what the world offers. Everything outside of these walls will drain you spiritually. We've talked about this. It will challenge you. It will harm you because the world doesn't want you to look like God. Why? Because the world's trying to get rid of God. That, that, that's where creation, we're, we're getting to Genesis. After Ephesians, we're going to go into Genesis and look at how Christ was the plan from the beginning and flesh it out through the entire book of Genesis. But creation is one of the first things that, that gets challenged, right? Well, we all evolved from amoebas. I didn't come from like algae growing in a pond, guys. I, I, I didn't. I've never gone to a pond and said, that algae right there has two legs. Look, look at that algae right there reading an algebra textbook. That is amazing. We must, no, it didn't happen that way. It says in the beginning, God created. The reason we don't want a creator is because if there's a creator, we're responsible to that creator. But if you're in Christ, you've been made new. So you're doubly accountable to God. And the world doesn't want you to walk that way. So it'll throw you social media, it'll throw you friends, it'll throw you wealth, it'll throw you, it'll throw you prosperity, it'll throw you uh, good times, it'll throw you addiction, it'll throw you anything to make you feel like what you're doing is okay and not needing of a savior. Even when you're saved. See, the common lie you hear in the church is, well, I'm saved, I'm okay. You know, I'll hit some, I'll miss some, you know, I'll be there when I can. Rather than saying, you know, my goal is godliness. And, and, and if I'm going to get to godliness, I need to be around those who emulate godliness and teach godliness and press me towards godliness rather than saying, you know what, I'm going to go hang out with the zebras and be a zebra. That's what we do. It's what we do. And Paul says, I, I'm urging you today to walk in a manner worthy. See that word Worthy. It is the same stem, the same root from which we get our understanding of worship. If something, when we worship something, we're saying that they are worthy of that accolade, that admiration, that joy. This is calling us to live as though we worship the one who called us to begin with. That doesn't mean that we walk around and we're just singing all the time, you know, singing songs, singing songs, Jesus loves me all the time. But in our heart, we're praising God. And now our decision on money we're going to spend, people we're going to hang out with, what we're going to do, what we're going to put in our body, what we're going to do with our body, what we're going to do with our time, what we're not going to do with our time, becomes a worship question of how we honor God in all things. But look what Paul goes on to show us. Because I know you're asking, okay, you talked about people walking at Walmart, and you talked about all this. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy that we've been called? Look at verse 2 with me. I'm glad you asked that question, by the way. He says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, 
showing tolerance for one another in love. Paul gives us four characteristics, clear characteristics of our walk. Four clear characteristics. Right there, it says the first one, humility. Humility. Probably the hardest thing for Western civilization is true humility. Because our civilization, our society is built on on what can you prove about yourself? What can you do? What can you accomplish? How can you? Social media is the worst place for humility. Because social media is where we want to put our best out there, right? You could scroll through, you could scroll through pictures on my, on my phone that I've taken because I'm really terrible about deleting pictures until the memory gets full, I just delete them all. Um, but you can scroll through all those things and like, let's say we're gonna get a family picture. So you've got Caleb and Braden and Addison and Christy. And we're all, there's like 19 pictures and there's only one where we're all looking at the camera and smiling, right? And it's not just because Caleb's a baby and he's, you know, looking and whatever. It's because, you know, we've got kids with their fingers in their nose. We're trying to grab this and trying to pull this. Not smiling good in this one. I'm kind of looking away. I'm grabbing. I'm talking because I apparently talk during pictures. I don't know. But all this, but we only share the one, right? We don't share the trouble ones. We share the, the one that looks good. The look how picture perfect my family is picture. Don't you wish all three of your kids could look at the camera at the same time like mine do? That's the picture we share, right? No, no, nobody goes and starts sharing about their day, about all, well, some people share way too much about their day, which is also a false humility. It's the look at me and feel sorry for me source of pride. See, all of social media is a look at me. So how many likes do I get? How many clicks do I get? How many times does this get shared? How often is this? When, when, when humility is not, as C.S. Lewis says, humility is not talking about myself less, but talk, or talk, not talking less about myself, but talking about myself less. Not the humble brag, well, you know, I've, I don't have all this and I can't do that. that that's, that's still a source of pride. But talking less about who we are and more of Christ, more of what he has done, more of the power of the gospel, more of the power of the community of faith because of the spirit of God that resides within us. Not only humility, look at what he says, with all humility and gentleness I love I love gentleness because it seems to be like the least masculine of all the terms that are listed here you know because 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 men don't really want to be known as the sensitive one like no I'm a man (laughs) don't call me don't call me sensitive I'm a man's man yeah I shave with bark you know uh I Not only do I grow my own food, I tell it how tall it's going to grow and I tell it how much it's going to grow and then it peels itself before it ends up in the pot. That's how much of a man I am. That's what we want to do, right? We want to make the Marlboro man look like he's he's a sissy, right? That's what we want to do. But gentleness does not go against manliness. See, gentleness is one of the, 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 one of the phrases that's used, one of King David, but two of King Jesus. Now, here's the deal. We, we can talk about King David being the smallest of his family, and we can talk about him uh, being the one that played the play. He was the musician. He was a little bit off. And we can talk about dude ripped bears in half with his bare hands. 
You, you remember over in, in, the, in the book of Samuel when Goliath's taunting the people of Israel and he says, I'm going to go fight him. Look at him. He, he didn't have the covering of God. I'm going to go fight him. And they said, what? You have no military training. He said, yeah. Have you hand fought a lion and won? Look at me. Have you stolen a sheep out of a bear's mouth? I have. Who's this guy? So, so by a show of hands, anybody hand fought a bear or a lion this week? Ever? If you do, that's pretty manly. <laughs> David was described as a gentle one that was after the heart of God. Christ Jesus was described as one who was gentle so much that he was like a sheep before its shearers was silent, was laying down his own life before. Gentleness doesn't mean that you're passive, doesn't mean that you're a pansy. Gentleness means that you know how to control your emotion and knows that you know how to control because you've got the spirit of God directing and holding your hand through it all. Oh my goodness, how much different would social media look if we could get a grasp of gentleness? How much different would schools and public forum and, and, and politics look if followers of Christ demonstrated gentleness with people with whom we don't agree? Part of the reason we've lost our ability to share our faith effectively with men and women, with families around us is because we don't know how to gently engage as emissaries of the Prince of Peace. We wanna write off anything that doesn't look Smell, act, think, believe like us. But then the fourth, the third one here is patience. Woohoo! Patience. I could probably skip over this because y'all look like y'all are the most patient people in the entire world, right? He says, with all humility and gentleness and with patience. With, with patience. The ability to be long suffering, the ability to walk with someone in difficulty, the ability to place yourself well to the back. Guess what? You're not going to be patient if you're not humble. You're not. Think about it. You're going to pull up to Burger King here in a little bit. I don't even know if there's a Burger King in Fairburn. I don't think there is. So let's, let's change it some of this in Fairburn. Let's go to Wendy's. All right, you're going to pull up to Wendy's to the drive-thru here in a little bit. And, and because you're in the Wendy's drive-thru, you're like, what's oh, a drive-thru? It's going to be quick. And what's going to happen is uh, there are going to be nine other cars in front of you. And for some reason today, Wendy's only scheduled one person to work the entire drive-thru, okay? So you know what that means? That you're going to have an extra 30-minute wait in the drive-thru. And you're going to get bent out of shape about it, right? You know why you're going to get bent out of shape about it? Because the whole experience is to revolve around you, which is a lack of humility, you can't be patient without humility because patience is saying, I'm placing all of my hopes, my dreams, my desires, all of the things that I associate to be just about me in the back seat in order to see someone else come to the fullness of Christ. I know it's hard. It, it's really, really hard. It's really hard when you go and you sit down at a restaurant and the server has missed your order a couple of times, forgot to bring you drinks, didn't bring you a couple of refills and you're sitting there waiting. It's really, 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 really hard to exude patience, right? Because after all, they're supposed to be serving me. They're not pleasing me. And chances are you're gonna lose an opportunity to share with them Christ 
over your lack of patience. You see how Paul is wrapping all this up. I know they didn't have table waiters like this. They didn't have drive-thrus. But what Paul is demonstrating is the selflessness of the gospel. Why? Because it wasn't our own doing. That's why our walk is characterized by humility and gentleness and patience because we, we didn't get there on our own. We didn't dream it up. We didn't make it ourselves because Paul says, look here, you've got someone else that's in charge. You're under new management. The old management of the world is gone. You're under new management today. And so you've got to look like the new manager. Thank you. Look like the new manager. And then the fourth one, bearing together. Look at what he says. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Church, this right here is a statement directed specifically at the community of faith. That's us. And, 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 and let me just kind of share with you what I mean by this one. It is in the context of the church that you come up, with, come up against someone else's brokenness in a way that is unlike any other arena within society or the world. Come, come, to your, come to a marriage for just a second. Boy meets girl, they fall in love, and you got Prince Charming, and you got, the, you got uh, the, just the, the greatest princess ever, and you know, the day two, you realize that you married a frog, and um, she's worse than the princess with the pee. You know? All that comes together, and you're exposed to someone's brokenness in marriage more than any other area. Then you have kids, and you've put other broken people on the ground. And you've got to deal with their brokenness, their lying, their misbehavior. But then you come to church where everybody's got it together, right? Everybody's smiling and all the men have on their ties or, or, or something's comparable. And everybody comes together like, hey, how are you, brother? Hey, how are you, brother? It's good to see you, brother. And all of us, we're all smiling and we're all happy because we're all perfect, right? And then the church business meeting comes. Y'all are Baptists, you know what I'm talking about. The church business meeting comes and that opinion that doesn't really jive with yours comes up and I don't want to do that and I think we should do this. And so what ends up happening is we realize, okay, maybe we're not as perfect as we thought we were. And then you're sitting in Sunday school and somebody's answering a Bible question. You're like, well, the answer to every question in Sunday school is supposed to be Jesus. What are you talking about? And you realize that somebody might not know as much of the Bible as you do. And, and, and then you're sitting there and you're talking with them a little bit more and you realize they actually might not know the gospel because they didn't do this and they didn't do this and they didn't vote for them. See, bearing together means that we set everything aside except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bearing together means that you and I have the ability in real time today and in real time for the rest of our earthly lives here to demonstrate to the world how the gospel brings people that would normally be opposed, people that would normally not see eye to eye together for something greater than individual families and individual interests. It's the interest of the king the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Savior, God. That's bearing together. And that means that if I understand the gospel in a way that you don't, that instead of saying, well, you're just not as saved as I am, it's, hey, let's get together and work on this. 
We talked this week, if you got the, the, the midweek newsletter, if you saw it uh, post on the blog about godly friendships, that's why the church needs godly friendships to where you're working one-on-one, building a relationship with someone for the purpose of helping them to know more about God and you knowing more about God in the process. That's bearing together. That's pressing one another towards a greater unity, towards a greater holiness, towards a greater passion for the gospel. See, the reason that our world is in the state that it's in is because we, by and large, are not passionate enough about the gospel because we're not developing it one-on-one together. Bear with one another in what? Love. Love. Why do we bear with one another in love? Because love, the Bible says, covers a multitude of offense. Because love is the language that God uses to speak to us in sending his son, Christ Jesus. Because while we were still sinners, God sent Christ to die for us. Or I love the way John says it in 1 John. God is love. God is love. If we are walking according to the call with which we've been called, we're walking in the way of love, which is the way of the gospel, which is the way that God demonstrated his power by sending Christ. Or as Paul said in Ephesians chapter one, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Walk, walk in love. And then the third thing Paul shares with us is that our walk is not temporary. Our our walk is not temporary. He starts pressing us towards why this is important. And I wanna encourage you, no matter how long you've been in the church, whether it's been for 30 minutes or for 30 years or even longer, to consider the longevity of the walk that God has called you to walk. It's not a today, yeah, this sounds really good. This is a sign up for all that you have and all that you are. This is a challenge to be totally different for all time. Look at what Paul says. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There is a hope. The word hope there is a symbol of something that is to come. Man, I wish, I've shared this with you before. I I wish it was so that when we came to faith in Christ Jesus, all of our problems, all of our heartache, everything went away. That would be awesome, right? I wish that the moment I came to faith in Christ Jesus, that right then I had in this life, in this present body right now, all of the fullness of everything that God had to offer. And I didn't just have to deal with junk. You know what? I got to deal with junk. It happens, right? But I have a hope that one day it's gonna be a junk-free life. Why? Because he is calling us to an eternal presence with him. We're already in it and we're still looking for it. That's hope, that's not temporary. See, temporary hope, temporary hope is in the morning when I wake up and I take a Nexium. That's a temporary hope that says, today I'm not gonna have reflux issues. But if I don't take that Nexium every day, I'm gonna have no hope for not having reflux issues. I'm gonna eat peanut butter for lunch and I'm gonna be miserable the rest of the day. And I'm gonna walk around, I'm gonna walk around with pain, I'm gonna walk around with, with stomach bloating, I'm gonna walk around burping and Chris's like, you're gross. I'm like, I'm sorry I didn't take my medicine this morning. 
That's temporary hope. But what God has offered is something eternal. So look what Paul says. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope. Why? Because following Christ requires diligence. It requires diligence. He says, there is one hope of your calling. Verse three says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. I love the word diligence. I apologize for skipping over chapter verse three just a second ago. I love, love the word diligence here. Diligence means making every effort. Diligence means making sure that it takes place when it's supposed to each and every time. Some of you know diligence. Let me give you an example of diligence and what happens when you're not diligent. You're going to go down here. Um, you're going to go down here to the bank. I don't care which bank. Let's say Bank of America. And you're going to take out a car loan because you need to buy a new car. So you go down here and they say, okay, we're going to give you $20,000 to go and you're going to buy uh, this uh, Honda Accord and that's going to be your car. And they're going to give you this schedule for six years of paying for that car. And you're going to be diligent every month to pay for that car, except for the fact that you quit paying for your car after about month eight, right? So you, you forego your, effort, your efforts at diligence. And you know what happens after about month three? Bank of America sends this guy to your house and that car is not going to be in your driveway anymore. He's going to send this guy with a tow truck. And that tow truck is going to take your car to some sort of impound lot until you can say, you know what, I think I should be diligent in paying for my car loan. See, you, you forego the diligence, you forego what's required, you forego the benefit of that diligence. And see, what happens in the church is we forego the diligence of the unity of following Christ. And so our churches end up in disarray. See, what Ephesians is doing now is setting us up for what it means to continue walking. He's starting at the corporate level of who we are in Christ together. Yes, that means that there is work required of us in each other's lives. Yes, that means that it is required that we show the world what a difference the gospel makes in community, that we exercise diligence. And then we see the expression of hope in verse four. It says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. We don't hope long-term in anything other than Christ. Man, medical science has come a whole long way. Long, long way. I, I had, had knee surgery last fall. Uh, we've had a couple of church members have knee surgery just in the last couple of weeks um, for, for some torn cartilage in the knee that was creating pain. You know what that have done 150 years ago? They would have cut my leg off, like right there. You know how they would have done it? They would have gone out to the woodshed and gotten the saw. They just cut a pine tree down, the handsaw, and they would have said, all right, we're going to give you a shot, but here's you a leather strap. Bite hard. Bite really, really hard. Woo, there it goes. But because of medical science, I have the hope of being put to sleep and waking up a couple of days or a couple hours later with a mild pain there that's going to get a little bit better as I go. Why? Because medical science has helped that. Some of you are here today because there was the hope that somebody could make your heart a little bit better by putting a pig valve or an artificial valve or an artificial start and stop switch in there. We've got a good hope in medical science, but guess what? It's not going to make us live forever. It's, we're not going to live forever. These bodies are going to fail us and medicine can't make us live forever. 
Guess what else can't go on forever? Your car. Guess what else can't go on forever? Your house. Guess what else can't go on forever? Your, your bank account, your check account. It's going to fail you at some point, but we have this hope in something eternal, something that's not temporary, and that's the calling to which we've been called. We're walking today because of where we're going. We're walking today because of where we've been placed. We're stepping out today in faith based on what he has promised with the full assurance of the gospel. It expresses hope. See, your decision tomorrow to live in light of the gospel in front of coworkers, in front of neighbors, in front of classmates is an expression of the hope that you have for eternity in Christ. It's a temporary expression for something eternal. But then he goes in verse five and six and says, because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Now, now, now here's the thing. If there's only one, then we're all called according to that one. And because we're all called according to that one, we as followers of Christ must demonstrate unity. Unity. Look at what he says. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. A house divided cannot stand. A house divided cannot stand. United we stand, divided we fall was one of the mantras of, of the colonial Americas as they sought independence from England, from Great Britain. But what we have today is something greater than binding of 13 colonies. It is the binding of the Spirit of God on all of our hearts. And that does not mean, unity does not mean that we agree 100% on everything together. But it means that we see the cross as primary. And for the cause of Jesus, and for the cause of seeing people come to faith in Christ, and for the cause of knowing what it means to be known by God, we put all of this stuff beside, to the side, leave it outside so that as a family we can go forward that's unity that's unity one of the greatest hindrances of people seeing the power of the gospel is the divided lives that we live and I submit to you that it is hard to be unified when we don't know each other personally it's hard it's really really hard I mean just just look at the fragments of America right now we, we've got this constitution, we've got this government, we've got this flag, we've got all these great things and we've got this with liberty and justice for all clause that we wanna, we wanna throw out there but it's kind of hard to see things the way people in California see things, the way people in Philadelphia see things, the way people in Chicago see things. It's kind of hard to bind ourselves in unity because we have all these fragments and we stereotype them. We get stereotyped too. We're just a bunch of bumpkins down there in the South. You know, we just got electricity last month and we're still working on shoes and flushable toilets, but we'll get there one day. Years ago, my hometown of Tifton did this thing to make ourselves the self-proclaimed reading capital of the world. If you've ever been down to Interstate 75, you've seen our billboards about it. Well, basically what that meant was we wanted to set the Guinness Book of World Records for the most people reading at the same time and the most accelerated reader points in the school system of all time and all these great things. Well, CBS News sent a news crew down to Tifton to do a report on our town. 
And we have this thing in Tifton called the Agrarama, which is a living history museum. It is a village set up like it was 1890. They did the entire news report in that place, showing kids running around chasing chickens on dirt roads with no shoes. And that's the stereotype. And we've got stereotype for left coast. We've got stereotype for Texas. We've got stereotype for Northeast and Midwest. We've got all this. And so it's hard for us to really place ourselves under. But for the cause of freedom and for the cause of our great country, we say we're going to unite ourselves together in these states. For the cause of the gospel. For the cause of the gospel in this place, in Fairburn, Georgia, we have a responsibility, a diligence to one another because of our diligence to the Lord to walk according to the call by which we've been called so that we're walking into the lives of our fellow believers, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ together. Arm in arm, hand in hand, Step by step, because your steps strengthen my steps and my steps strengthen your steps. But we can't step together if we don't know one another. Christ Jesus died and broke the dividing barrier between each one of us because he broke the barrier between us and God. Let me ask you this morning, if you've never trusted that God, if you've never walked into, walked through that barrier, where the barrier used to be, if you've never come to this calling, that today you would hear the call of the gospel beckoning for your response and that you would say, I'm laying it all down. I'm laying friendships down. I'm laying work down. I'm laying finances down. I'm laying popularity down. I'm laying substance down. I'm laying it all down for the call of the gospel because that is the supremacy of God in my life. I ask you today to come to answer, to hear. Maybe you have trusted Christ, but you've walked away and the gospel is calling you and beckoning you to come back to what is primary, to what is, what, what is right here in front of you as the chief concern of your heart and your life, the glory of God in Christ. Today, I ask you to come.